Now we should note that Jesus only uses that phrase one time as an analogy for salvation. He uses many other analogies for what it means to follow him. And so in today's world, it's probably good that we don't use that analogy or only in certain situations. Otherwise, we risk throwing up a mental roadblock to faith in Jesus. But the truth is, that is where faith begins, really starts. We experience a spiritual birth. That's the starting place. And so when we think about a spiritual birth, again, and the reactions to the notion of being born again, it's a simple reminder of what we talked about last week. You know, often any discussion of the Holy Spirit raises all kinds of questions, doubts, and emotions because the Spirit is usually the most misunderstood person of the Trinity and is generally the least talked about in most churches. We pointed out last week in the story of Pentecost that there were three reactions to what happened in Jerusalem when the promised Spirit came upon all the believers there. Some were amazed. Some wanted to know more about the Spirit and were interested in what was happening. Some were confused and perplexed. They didn't understand what was happening and, and they, they didn't make sense to them. And then others mocked the Spirit, ridiculing Jesus' as followers, rejecting what was God doing. All these reactions. And, and say we get many of those same reactions today when we talk about the Spirit. So it's really important for us as believers, as Jesus' followers, that we deal with our own thoughts and feelings and prejudices and experiences that we've had or have not had on the subject of the Holy Spirit. If we don't, we'll never let or invite the Spirit to be at work in our lives. And we'll miss out on so much that God wants to do in our lives. You know, if you have concerns or questions, I'd encourage you to go back and last, listen to last week's message that addresses that issues, the various feelings we have about the Holy Spirit. Paul, in his letter to Titus, is really explaining first the rationale behind the need for a spiritual birth. He's identifying the problem. You know, Titus was the key leader of the church on the island of Crete, which is just off the coast of Greece. You can see where Crete is. It's a fairly substantial island. It was a fairly well-populated island. Um, the church was probably not a large church, maybe a hundred or so followers of Jesus. This is not the Bible Belt. People on the island of Crete, by and large, were pretty hostile to Christianity. You see, the island of Crete was considered the birthplace of all the Greek gods, most notably Zeus, their main god. And Greek gods, by their traditions, and Roman gods, were ordinary men and women who, by their lives and choices, became gods. Jesus is the exact opposite. He's the god who became a man to walk amongst us. Well, these gods, Greek gods and Roman gods, you read about them, they manifested all the selfish characteristics of real people. They were jealous and greedy. They fought among themselves. They were sexually permissive, and they slandered and lied about anyone who rejected their belief system or opposed them with each other. And the people of Crete took great pride in their religious history and tradition and in following the pattern of how their gods lived. Their society was a mess. There was no sense of community. Society was polarized and divided. So Paul is encouraging Timothy that Jesus' followers ought to live differently than the society around them. So in the verses 1 and 2, Paul tells them that they should respect their government and leaders, even if they disagree with them. 
They should seek to do good, not speak evil of people. That they should be gentle and humble. Don't be proud or arrogant or judgmental. And that sounds exactly, I think, like the advice that Paul would speak to Jesus' followers in today's culture that we live in today. We need to live in a way that is different than the world around us. That's what Jesus did. And so the community of Christ followers are to live in a different way, manifested tangibly in how they treated the people and the society around them and how they treated one another. And then Paul reminds them in this passage very graphically that they were just like the people around them before their faith in Jesus. And they could easily revert to those same kinds of behaviors. In verse 3 he says, Once we too were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of envy and evil, and we hated each other, we fought with each other. So Paul is telling Titus in the church there that if there's going to be any real change in the culture around them, it's not going to come from the government or prevailing culture of the island because it's broken. But it's going to start with the grassroots level of Jesus' followers. If they genuinely lead changed lives, living, acting, and speaking in a way consistent with Jesus, by their example, the people around them are going to begin to see at the power of God at work in the Christian community. Christian community is not going to be judgmental, condescending, or mocking of the culture around them. They're going to be gentle and kind, loving and treating everyone with respect, even those that oppose them. And Paul is basically saying that it's impossible to live that way unless one experience a genuine spiritual birth by following Jesus. And only then will the power of the Spirit be released in the lives of Jesus' followers, enabling them to live differently. You know, I believe it's very clear that Paul would say the same thing to the American church, to those who claim to be followers of Jesus today. Our society and our culture is not going to change because of what the government does or the laws are passed. That won't heal the divide or the wounds or the hostility that exists. Now, there's a place for proper laws to promote justice, but if anything in our culture is going to change, it has to start with Jesus' followers and how we live and act towards one another and everyone else in their culture. And that takes a shift in our thinking, our words, our actions. We're going to need the power of the Spirit in our own lives and communities for that to happen. And then in verses 4 to 7, Paul goes on and he explains, secondly, how the power of the spiritual birth came about and why it is absolutely necessary. And, and, and it really goes back to who God is. That God is our creator, the very nature of God. And so first, God is our creator and it is in nature to restore creation. And this is the verse from Isaiah. It's a classic one. And yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all formed by your hand. Now think about the implications of that. He's saying we're a, a lump of clay and he's the potter who shapes the clay and produces something, in this case, people who are beautiful and purposeful and manifest the character of God in their own lives. Watch just this video of a, uh, of a potter. You know, he takes that little clay with his hands, he, he molds and shapes. Um, you know, and, and, and sometimes 
a potter will make a mistake as he's spinning the wheel and the, the thing will collapse. And what does he do? He stops it, he packs it back in its shape and he can start all over again to create whatever it is that he wants to create. And that's the image that Isaiah uses for who God is implicit in the idea that God is our creator. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them in Genesis. David, in Psalm 139, talks about how God knew us even before we were born, saying, for you formed my inward parts. You shaped me on the potter's wheel. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And then God goes on and speaks to Jeremiah, and he uses the image of the potter, saying that, when the item that the potter creates is spoiled, the potter has the right to redo it and recreate a new piece of lump of clay. And he's talking here about Israel, and he says this, And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. And then God asked Jeremiah this question. He says, Don't I have the same right as the potter to restore my people? Because he is the creator God, he has the absolute right to restore and reimagine the kind of human life and community that he originally attended in creation. God is that potter. He has the right, just as any potter in that video can create anything he wanted to do out of that lump of clay. And God's desire has always been to turn each of us into his masterpiece. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's masterpiece, God's workmanship. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You know, the Greek word for masterpiece is poema. What does that sound like? Poem, literally. We are God's poem. We are God's work of art. But again, as we said last week, he never forces us to accept him as the potter. It's always our choice. We have to invite him to be our potter. And that's what's expressed in the old hymn, Have Thy Own Way, Lord. Adelaide Pollard penned those words in 1902. Now, she was a, a Christian. She wanted to go to Africa to serve as a missionary there, but was unable to raise the support she needed. And she had grown increasingly discouraged and depressed. And then she tells a story when she was at a prayer meeting. She heard an elderly lady pray these words. It doesn't really matter what you do with us, Lord. Just have your own way with our lives. And as she pondered those words, she realized that God is the potter and has the right to do what he wants. When we, and when we yield to him and his will, we find the most fruitful, purposeful, and healthiest life. At this point, Sue Ellen's going to come up and, and sing those words. Have thine own way. The words will be on the screen, but I encourage you just to listen and if you want to join in at some point, that's fine. But just hear these words. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Search me and try me, Master, today. 
Wash me just now, Lord. Wash me just now. As in thy presence, humbly I bow. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Wounded and weary, help me. I pray, power of power, surely is thine. Touch me and heal me, Savior divine. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Hold all my being, absolute sway. Fill with thy spirit, till all shall see. Christ only always living in me. Thank you, Sue Allen. You know, just think about those last words of the verse. Hold over my being absolute sway. Fill me with the Spirit till all shall see Christ only, always living in me. That realization changed Pollard's life, and it'll change ours if we embrace it. Eventually, she did make it to Africa but it changed her whole perspective in, in how she was approaching God and everything. And, and she was a Christian. She loved the Lord. She wanted to serve as a missionary. But still, she needed an attitude change and an understanding. Ultimately, it's God's will for who we are and how we live. That brings us back to Titus. And, and Paul's words to him for the church at Crete explain us why we need a spiritual birth that's needed. And, and it's really obvious. It says, we can't fix ourselves. And it says, then Jesus appeared. You know, in verses 4 to 7, it's this one long convoluted sentence. But it lays out exactly why the spiritual verse is necessary. In verse 7, he writes, But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he appeared, Jesus appeared. He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Fundamentally, we cannot fix ourselves because of sin. We're all broken in different ways to different degrees. And that's what Paul talked about in the earlier verses. We carry brokenness in so many different ways. Think about this. You know, we carry in our lives pain and false images of who we are from our experiences in life. We choose unhealthy ways to find meaning and pleasure in life. We act selfishly, seeking only to take care of ourselves at times, but we end up hurting ourselves, others, and undermining our relationships and community. We delude ourselves into thinking that we can fix everything ourselves. And that's part of our, our culture, or our self-made people. We can fix everything, that we can solve our problems. You know, for a long time we thought science and technology could fix all the ills in the world and in ourselves. And with all our technical advances, which are amazing, do the problems of the world seem to grow smaller or bigger? They seem to grow bigger all the time, don't they? Despite all their technology. 
You know, then think about all the insights of counselors and social workers and psychologists and psychiatrists. Yet the brokenness only seems to increase. Often as a culture and a government, we think that if everyone has everything they need in life, all will be well. But look at the world. Look at all the people who have wealth and power. Yet often they still act incredibly selfishly and greedily, hurting others in society. It doesn't matter what we have. We still can end up acting in, in wrong ways. And then we see over and over again, you know, in election cycle after election cycle, we hear politicians say from all sides of the coin that if you vote for me, I'll fix everything. And we want to believe somehow that they will fix everything. That we can fix our lives by ourselves. We think the solution is our own human mind and heart, our ability to fix it. You know, right now, Sue and I have, we have 12 grandchildren, one underway, but we have four, three young grandchildren and the fourth one due in the next month or so. And without a doubt, they are the cute and fun to be around. They make you laugh. They are undoubtedly the cutest grandchildren in the world. You know, sorry other folks and grandparents, but you know, you gotta understand these are ours, they're the cutest. But you know what? When you look at them, you realize when they want something or someone's attention, they better get it or they let you know in a lot of different ways. How do they let you know? Crying, pouting, getting angry, sometimes hitting. They can throw some incredible tantrums. What do they need? They need someone outside of themselves parents and family to fix, heal, correct them, and keep them growing in healthy ways. They need someone outside of themselves. Well, guess what? We need someone outside of ourselves to help us. You know, you know, as adults, as we grow up, we learn to throw our tantrums in subtler, more culturally acceptable ways, or, or some of us don't. But we still need someone outside of ourselves to help us. If you think about the Old Testament, one way to look at the Old Testament is a story of how Israel, God's people, could not fix themselves. Read through the Old Testament and realize how much God provided for them, spoke to them, all the things he did for them, but they still couldn't fix themselves. They needed help outside of themselves. Paul reminds us that we're saved not because of anything we do, we need someone outside of us. We need Jesus. So Paul is telling us that just the right moment, love appeared and offered a new way of life. The epiphany took place. Jesus was born in a little baby in a stable in Bethlehem in an unimportant little village in Judea. He didn't come born to power or royalty, wealth or anything. Instead, he came humbly demonstrating that there's another way to live that is both healthy and fulfilling rooted in the simple truths of loving God and loving others just as ourselves. The fix is not because of anything we do, but it's simply because of God's love and kindness that Jesus appeared at just the right moment in history to point us to another way. So Paul then goes on to tell us that we have to start all over again with a new heart and a new spirit. And he writes, he washed away our sins giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
Now think about that phrase, he washed away our sins. It's so important. You know, think about your life and our lives, or people you know. How long do we hang on to our grief if we used, lose a loved one? Many move on, but others never move on beyond their grief. You know, when I was in Revere, there were two families that I realized that lost children. One family wore it on their sleeve, and they've been wearing it on their sleeve for 10, 15 years, and they're wearing it on their sleeve the rest of their lives. It was evident. Another one lost a young child, and I didn't realize that she had lost a young child until a week or two before she died, because she didn't wear it on her sleeve. She moved past her grief. Her faith in Jesus Christ, she said, I know my child is in heaven, I'm going to see her again. How, how often, you know, you, th you think about this. How long do we hold on to our anger and hurt, refusing to forgive when a loved one is hurt or we're hurt in a big way? How long sometimes do we stay angry at God if we're disappointed in life or someone gets really sick or we encounter a real crisis or some kind of terrible accident? How long do we hold on to pains and hurts we carry out of childhood to shape us and cripple us? How often do people spend years and years and decades in therapy but never seem to get really better and escape the prison cell of their own thoughts or emotions? How long do we beat ourselves up refusing to forgive ourselves? when we feel like we failed or really hurt someone we loved. It's hard for us to let go, to change how we think and feel, and to move towards a healthier way of thinking, feeling, and living. How hard is it for us to not live in a purely selfish way, and to live, not live in a purely selfish way, and to genuinely love our neighbors as ourselves? You know how hard that is. All of those experiences I just described Paul is saying it rooted in our sin, in the sin of others or the corrupted world that came as a result of human sin back in the garden. It's extremely hard for us to forget and let go of those experiences that have invaded our lives. It's incredibly hard to forget and move on from all those feelings and situations and emotions. And Paul says, then Jesus appeared and he showed us his love and a new way of living. And he says at the cross, he totally forgives and washes away all trace of what we did wrong. And what that means is, it says that God will never hold them against us again. He will never accuse us or bring them up and point fingers and say, you remember when you did that way back then? He's saying he never holds it against us again. Despite how much we may hold on to him or belittle or, or put ourselves down. David writes in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so he removes our transgressions from us. God declares through Jeremiah to the people of Israel that one way Jesus appears, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. See, what Paul is saying is God gives us a complete do-over. He wipes out and leaves our past in the rearview mirror. We get a new start with a new heart and a new spirit. We experience a new birth a new life through the power of the Spirit because of what Jesus did. And that's one of the great promises of the Old Testament that God gives to his people and we who follow Jesus. God speaks through the prophet Ezekiel that he's going to restore and recreate his people so that the world will get a true picture of who God is, of his love and grace and mercy. You know, and so the new birth is not just about us so that we experience a good life, but it, it's about 
how we appear and represent God to the nations so that the nations and the people of the world will know that he is God by how his people live in the midst of the broken world. Of the new birth, God promises this in Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will live by my rules and be careful to obey my laws. And so instead, God is seeing God's ways as oppressive or burdensome. We will recognize that his ways bring life. He'll give us spirit to empower us to live the right way. I mean, that's the symbolism of baptism. You know, we're lowered into the water, washed away the old self. We're raised to new life in Christ. So if the spirit then empowers that change, that's why the New Testament constantly talks about the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes this, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And he's saying that same spirit will bring new life and perspective to our own lives. It will empower our ministry, service, and words. And again, Paul writes, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but what? In demonstration of the Spirit and power. What Paul is saying is the Spirit will draw us to God. The Spirit will lead us to acknowledging and confessing our wrong attitudes, actions, and words. The Spirit will walk us through life. He'll whisper to us and assure us that we're never alone, that we are a child of God, that we're loved and belong to His family. He'll comfort us in the difficult moments of life, bringing us a sense of peace and perspective. He'll speak truth to us, convicting us and teaching us. He'll lead us and guide us in all the decisions and choices we face. He'll give us the gifts to be used in the church to care for and minister to others, both in the church and outside the church. He will fill us with joy and the Spirit of God's work through us. The Holy Spirit gives us everything we need to live and walk as the follower of Jesus. You think about that. Paul has identified why we need a new birth. First, the rationale behind that birth. We can't live the way God designed us to live. The way Jesus lived, apart from a new birth and the presence of God through his spirit in our lives. And then he explained how that spiritual birth came about and why it's essential you know, God is our creator, and that's who he is. It's his nature to restore his creation. Just as the potter, he makes a mistake, he can start over with a new, that lump of clay and make it something new. In the same way, God wants to reshape and restore us. The truth, and the truth is, we can't fix ourselves. We need someone outside of ourselves to show us the way, just like a child needs a parent. Someone outside of themselves to teach, correct, point them to a healthy way of living. We can't fix ourselves. And that's where the idea of a new birth, of being born again, comes in. We're completely forgiven. Our past is left behind by God, never to be brought up again. We're now ready for a fresh start. We have to start all over again with a new heart and a new spirit. But this time we're not alone. This time we have the presence and the power of the Spirit of God to walk with us, to equip us, and to strengthen us to live a different way. And then finally, Paul says in the very last verses of Titus, we'll find a new purpose and confidence for life. 
You know, in 2 Corinthians 5, we know this verse where it says that we follow Jesus, we're a new creation, and the old has passed away, and a new life has begun. And then he says with this new life comes a calling to a greater purpose. Paul goes on to say it this way, all this is from God who thrived Christ, reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He says we have a new purpose. We have the privilege and responsibility to invite others to be reconciled to God, forgiven because of Jesus, and it's given us an opportunity for a new birth and fresh start. It's not just reconciliation with God, but it's also an opportunity for us to be reconciled with ourselves, to find our true self, to be reconciled with one another, to be invited into a new family that is eternally enduring. Everyone becomes an ambassador and a minister for the kingdom of God. You know, that's why I hate the term minister. A minister is, a, is, is the poorest term for pastor. Because when you use the term minister, it implies they're the ones that do the ministry. And what Paul is saying here is everyone is given a ministry of reconciliation. Everyone who follows Jesus is called to the same thing. But it's not just a new purpose in life, it's a new confidence for the future. Our last verse says this, because of the grace he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. So we gained us assurance that our future is assured that God will never turn his back upon us and never abandon us or leave us alone. That we're assured we'll always have a place in his presence. You know, we live in a world where the future looks very uncertain and unpredictable. But this new birth is supposed to give us the assurance that our presence with God is always there, always assured. We can find a peace and confidence that will carry us through any of the uncertainties of life. brings us the confidence that Jesus will return. And when he does, he'll rule this world and restore this broken world. He'll judge evil on those who practice it. He'll reward those who sought to faithfully follow Jesus. And you know, just before Palm Sunday, before Jesus entered the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he encounters this sincere, sincere devout, rich young man who wants the assurance that he would receive eternal life. He, he wants to love God. He sincerely sought to live for God by obeying the commandments. But there's one problem, and Jesus identified it. He, he loved his money and possessions more than he loved God. And, 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 and Jesus then told his disciples that it's hard for a rich man, not impossible, but hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Anything's possible for God. And the disciples were so shocked because they thought riches were a sign of God's blessing. So they just assumed in the culture, a rich person would enter the kingdom of God because they had God's blessing. So they're, they're a little nervous now. And so they asked Jesus what assurance they have about eternal life. Since they don't have anything, they left everything to follow him. And he says this, all those who have left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, or farms to follow me will get more than they left and they will have life forever. Many who are first now will be last in the future, and many who are last now will be first in the future. So Jesus is telling his disciples today, and us today, that if we make the choice to let Jesus be first in our lives, we'll never have to worry about the future. But the choice is ours. God always leaves the choice to us. Will we allow the Spirit to so work in our lives that God would have full authority to do whatever he wants in and through our lives. 
That is always the choice before us. That's what the new birth is all about. You know, after we pray, we're going to sing a song that is really the modern version of the old hymn, Have Thine Own Way, Lord. And it's called this, Lord, Reign in Me. Like the hymn, it's really an invitation to let God have full authority and say in my life. And in these words, you're going to hear these things. It says, Lord, reign in me. Reign in my dreams. Reign in my darkest hours. Reign in my words. Reign in my thoughts. Have full sway in my life. That's the invitation that God always puts before us as his followers. Let's pray.